Today on This Week Health. So there it is, day one of retirement, and the phone's not ringing. And I get anxious about this stuff. The first time someone comes along and says, hey, would you like to help me out here or there? And you get anxious enough, you start jumping at stuff prematurely. And actually, the hardest part for me in the whole thing, Sue, was for decades, this sort of full-time professional, white-collar, C-suite type was my identity. And all of a sudden, it wasn't. Welcome to This Week Health Community. This is Town Hall, a show hosted by leaders on the front lines with interviews of people making things happen in healthcare with technology. My name is Bill Russell, the creator of This Week Health, a set of channels designed to amplify great thinking to propel healthcare forward. We want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Now, on to our show. Hello, I'm Sue Shea, principal at Starbridge Advisors and one of the hosts for the Town Hall Show on the Community Channel. Today, my guest is John Glasser. John is executive in residence and program director for leading digital transformation in healthcare at Harvard Medical School and currently sits on many boards. John and I have known each other since 1999 when he was the CIO at Partners Healthcare, now called Mass General Brigham. He hired me, took a risk on me as the CIO for Brigham and Women's. I've learned so much from John over the years, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So welcome, John. Thank you, Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I remember hiring you, and I think your first day was the uh, first of the millennium, so to speak. So Y2K was the centerpiece of all of our attention on that, but it's been a, been a pleasure ever since. Well, likewise, and that was quite a start. So let's start by you introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you're currently working on. So I've been in this industry for a long time, 35 years, 22 years as the CIO at the Partners Healthcare System, Brigham and Women's Hospital, leading into that. And then five years as running the healthcare IT business for Siemens, then five years with Cerner, because we were acquired by Cerner at the time, dealing with population health, et cetera. So I've been retired, sort of a lowercase r, as you and I have chatted about for the last two and a half years. And as you mentioned, I teach a course, exec ed course on leading digital transformation in healthcare at the Harvard Medical School. Also do a fair amount of writing. Two colleagues and I produced a book, came out last month, on AI and healthcare. Now working on a Harvard Business Review article on telehealth and kind of what's next. It goes through there. And as you mentioned, sit on some boards of startup companies, but also boards like Scottsdale Institute and NCQA and the American Telemedicine Association, along with, as happens with people who hit my age, spending time with grandkids, of which there are five. So the usual a glide path out of full-time employment into I'm not sure what, but certainly enjoying it along the way. Right. Well, you're getting into some of the things I want to talk about in a little bit. Sure. That being the small R retirement, as well oh. as the book. And I should have mentioned that you do a lot of writing and you clearly have been an inspiration to me in terms sure. of your writing. What I want to start with is the CIO role. Mm-hmm. And we're coming up here on the Chime Fall Forum. You're going to be mm-hmm. there, right? Yes. Okay. Sure. And it's 30-year anniversary. I think you were a founding member. I was the founding chair of the board founding of chair. way back when. Yeah. Excellent. So they're probably going to celebrate you in some way. Share your thoughts on the evolution of the CIO role over the years. Well, I think so. You know, a 30-year period of time has been an extraordinary evolution. And we couldn't be surprised from an industry that changes as rapidly as the technology changes, et cetera. You go back to 30 years ago, 1992, and Google didn't exist. Amazon didn't exist. The you know business use of the internet really hadn't happened. There certainly weren't mobile devices, and AI was this sort of on again, off again curiosity, more so than anything else. 
So there have been a lot of changes. You can put them into a, a couple of buckets. I remember when I first started as a CIO, I thought what this job really was, was the application parade. Let's do a new pharmacy system, then a new lab system, and then a new revenue cycle system. And every five years, we repeat that. It's just this parade of applications. Advanced clinical systems were in a smaller of academic medical centers, but really not common at all across the board. So over time, you've just seen this, first of all, phenomenal progress on the technology. You and I are now Zooming, which we weren't doing at that point, and using mobile phones, which we weren't doing. So just extraordinary, at least in the technology, but also growing sophistication of the application base, going from, let's get another thing for pulmonary function to where we're now really worrying about EHRs and digital front doors and remote patient monitoring and things like that. So just the uses of the technology have been extraordinary. Also remember at the time, you would sit in the C-suites and there was really little understanding of the technology, little experience with it, et cetera. Very mystifying, arcane, et cetera. And now what you find is a couple of things. One is the people in the C-suite, they've been there. They've been through implementations. They grew up with the technology. They're much more conversant with it, much more comfortable. They're less starry-eyed, but they're also less intimidated by this thing. And also, the CIO was brought in to be the person who was the sort of digital smart person. And now you look around and you say, it's a team sport. You've got CNIOs and CMIOs and you know, all the C-suite, the chiefs in the IT realm, let alone the whole thing. So it really is becoming a team sport than it was in the war. So you've got the threat of technology, you got the threat of applications, you got the threat of actually sophistication of this thing. Plus, to go with the sophistication, at the time, Sue, there was just this beginning of this idea that you could use IT for a competitive weapon, you know, airline reservation systems and supply chain systems. And we've actually moved beyond that whether you can get a competitive advantage to whether whole-scale industries get changed forever. And so retail's different forever, entertainment different forever. And so we've evolved in terms of potency of the technology and what it can do across the board. And we've seen healthcare go through its own transition. Fee-for-service was the game, Pack the place. Always the name of the game back in 1990, and that's still around. But there's value-based care, and it used to be you worried about the hospital and on-site clinics, and now you worry about an integrated system of care that spans the gamut and is much larger than it was before. So the whole healthcare settings become larger, more complex, more sophisticated. And then the last point I think is different. And it's way back, we started the sort of the chime boot camp because you recognize that not only do you have to change, you have to elevate the skills. Well, however good you were at communicating, you had to get better at communicating. Or however good you were at forming teams, you had to get a better at forming teams. And I actually believe that if whatever constituted a letter grade A in terms of skills five, 10 years ago is now a letter grade B, the bar is higher in terms of skills. You just have to get better and better and better because it's more complicated, it's more sophisticated. and so don't rest on your laurels. You, you think you're the greatest communicator on the planet. You can't do that anymore. So I think there's a lot of change. It's clearly a harder job now than it was then. I mean, it wasn't easy then, but it's clearly a harder job. So I sometimes think, Sue, I got out just in time. Peter Principal <laughs> would have hit the ceiling of incompetence and bailed at the right time along the way. So it's just been cool to watch. And I think going like you to this 30th anniversary be kind of this neat time of reflection. You know, we're always bemoaning we're behind, got this issue and that issue. And say, yeah, 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 yeah. We, that's true. But golly, there has been a lot of progress and a lot of change in the last 30 years. Well, I think what we're going to see as we reconnect with people in person there, that many, if not the majority, have titles that are variations on Chief Information Officer, yeah. CIO with digital data analytics. The roles have expanded and changed. So 
It will be good to be talking to people. This is a good lead into the next question I want to ask you, which is what you see in terms of some exciting new digital advances in healthcare in the coming years, in the next few years. You talked about some of where we've come from, but what do you see in the next few years? And maybe you're covering some of it in your class that you're teaching. Well, I think a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, I've always thought that about every 10 years, there's a class of technology, information technology, that arrives on the landscape and changes the world forever. And so in the 60s, it was the mainframe. It was 70s, it was the mini computer. And frankly, the whole healthcare IT industry began that. Cerner, Epic, Meditech all started with the mini computer in the 70s. In the 80s, it was the network personal computer. That's kind of when I got into the field. And you had the, yep. the ATs and the XTs and all that other stuff. Yep. And you could connect them with Ethernet and away you go. In the 90s, it was the web. And yep. so it was Amazon founded in 1994, Google founded in 1998, and all of a sudden, golly. We're using the internet for business and personal reasons. And in the year 2000, it was a mobile device. The iPhone debuted in 2007. And you think about that. It's only 15 years ago. That's nothing. Uh, and yet it's ubiquitous. I'll bet you, you and I got a chime. There will not be a single person with an iPhone attached to their body somewhere. There won't be one uh, that we'll find there. So, and then 2100, I could argue it's really the era of the sensors and the big data. We're beginning the people sort of, golly, I got a smart house and I got a smart car and the social media. And I think this decade is AI that's coming through. And all these things change the world, but they change over time. The e-commerce, the web is, we're still dealing with web impacts yeah, on elections, for example. How do you sort of deal with pristine and pure and information-laden elections decades later? So it's a big deal. Now we're in the early stages of the Gartner hype, lots of hype and lots of disillusionment of, oh, I'm worried about bias, this, that, and the other, but it'll play out and it'll change the world over the course of decades. So in a way you say, what's going to happen in three to five? We'll see that thing play through. I'll continue to do that. Plus I was looking at how many different devices are attached to Alexa, 300 million across the world. Holy smokes, you know, uh, in your car, everywhere. And let alone your phone looking at whether your gait indicates that you have early forms of dementia. So prior eras are still playing through. So you can never see the real leaps. You and I couldn't have gone to Chime Meeting in 1992 and said, I'll bet you, Sue, the internet's coming. I guarantee it's, you know, it's going to be, you know, wouldn't have seen that. So nobody sees those. They do see the trajectory of stuff that is in play now as a, just hang on to your hats. It's going to be bigger. We'll get back to our show in just a moment. I'd like to share with you an upcoming webinar we have on October 13th. We have Delivering Better Patient Experiences with Modern Digital Infrastructure. During that conversation, we're going to talk about multi-cloud. We're going to talk about modernizing health IT infrastructure and a blueprint for creating an agile digital infrastructure without impacting quality of care. The webinar has five campaign episodes. You can view them before the webinar. And you can find all that stuff on our website, thisweekhealth.com. Also, join us on November 3rd for Cyber Insecurity in Healthcare, the cost of impact on patient safety and care. Cyber criminals have shut down cr clinical trials and treatment studies and cut off hospitals' access to patient records, demanding multi-million dollar ransoms for their return. Our webinar will discuss IT budgeting, project priority, and in-distress communications to serve our patients affected by cyber criminals. You can register for both webinars at thisweekhealth.com. Just click on the upcoming webinar section in the top right-hand corner, and I look forward to seeing you there. Well, let's, you talk about AI, and I will tell you many of the startup organizations that reach out for either help or they need someone on the advisory board, but they're getting going, they, you know, AI powered. Sure. 
everything right now. Sure. Let's use this as a segue. You can talk about your book. Is the book out already? Yeah, so that came out in August. Uh, I was I wrote it with two colleagues, uh, a guy named Tom Davenport, who's an academic who's written a lot of stuff, and then Elizabeth Gardner, who is a reporter, used to be with Modern Healthcare, Healthcare Informatics, and I've collaborated with Elizabeth on multiple articles over the years. So three of us put this thing together, but it debuted in August. What's the name? What's the title? Oh, sure. Yes. This is there you point. go. You got to have a copy. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, Advanced Introduction to Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. Uh, Excellent. Pretty, pretty snazzy title. Excellent. You know what I feel like? I watch MSNBC a lot, no surprise. And if someone's got a book, it's on their bookshelf behind them on the Zoom call. There's usually a couple of them standing up or they're promoting it in some other way. So fine for you to promote it here. I think uh, your next your next background's got to be a bookshelf with your book on it. We see one, I, one of the shows I really like, which I'm only allowed to watch and my wife's not here, is Ancient Aliens, which you know how aliens walk up. Anyway, great okay. show. There's only 180 episodes, so it'll take you the rest of your life to get through them. But they always have this interview with this sort of, quote, scientist. So there's this person with long hair, big beard, and a book wall behind him. And it's this Chuck Robinowitz, scientist. And he's thinking, they could have been here. Wow, I got a real scientist with real books behind him. Let's know what he's talking about, et cetera. So we're not going to do that today. Okay. <laughs> All right, John, you, you cracked me up. Anything else you want to say about the book? Well, no, I think, well, if people buy it, that's great. Uh, but I think the, <laughs> no, the, uh, just a couple of key points about it. One is the basic thing is anytime I think you write, and you've written a lot, is you imagine you're in front of an audience. Say, well, who is the audience? I'd say, well, they could be a room full of CIOs or whatever it is. And I have to explain something to that audience. And so how do I explain it? And what do I want to explain? So in this case, it was, let's presume you're in a boardroom of a health system or the C-suite. And they say, John, you're the CIO, the chief digital officer. What should we do about AI? What are you going to say about this? How do you think about this? And you say, one thing is really profound. It's going to be a big deal, but it'll take time. But I say, there's really two other fundamentalists, one of which nobody buys AI. People buy something that is better because of AI. They buy a car that is safer because of AI. They buy an MRI that is better detecting an impending failure because of AI. They buy an application that helps them manage prior authorizations or utilization management. So you use the same set of skills, the same set of instincts you have done in any software decision. What does it do? How well does it do it? Show me that it works, all this kind of stuff. And if you got the magic AI word, why do I care? What is it you're going to do? So just remember, you don't buy AI, you buy something else in that context. The second, you know, like you've been around in this industry for a couple of years, is I remember when we first had internet strategy committees. This was in the late 90s, and you had a group of people for three years, and you're trying to learn, what's the technology? What does it do? And are there pitfalls? It's the way you learn about this stuff. And I say, well, we're in a similar time now with AI, and I think it would be prudent to put together an system, a group of people who may be led by the chief information officer, whose job it is to figure out, let's learn about this. Let's sponsor some pilots. Let's talk to our vendors. Let's talk to our consultants and engage in learning. And because it's going to be here and it's going to be real. And the sooner we get our head around it, the better. You don't have to bet the farm on it. I'm always asking you to throw out your EHR to go to an AI power gizmo of this stuff. So I think those are the two, you don't have to buy the book now because those are the two major lessons. You know, and you just get organized around a multi-year learning process. Now, if you see a breakthrough wrap, go for it. The scale and all that other stuff here, et cetera. But don't get all tangled up in the Star Wars robot AI doc and don't get all tangled up on it's all bias and favors Caucasians, but nobody else. And oh, for God's sakes. 
So a very practical kind of approach yeah. is what I'm yeah. hearing. Well, which, yeah. yeah, but that's what you would expect in front of a room full of C-suites. Right. Absolutely. And what I would expect from you as well. Uh, <laughs> very much so. Great. Okay. Well, people can buy the book, I'm sure, on Amazon or wherever, uh, right? Yep. And you'd be happy if they do. Okay. My last question. When sure. we got together in July and I said, so are you retired? It was a quick, and I think from your wife, Denise, too, small R, right? It's yeah. a small R retirement, which I love the concept. So tell me what small R is because you're awfully busy. And what's your advice for people late in their career to prepare for yeah. small R retirement? Well, so like like you, I know people who quote retired said I'm done with a nine to five shtick, uh, and they basically left their work world entirely behind them. They became carpenters, they became art, whatever it is. They just really they walked away, closed the door, and that wasn't me. And partly because I am so boring, I don't have any outside interests that would occupy me other than rearranging the furniture in the living room every day, which would get me shot. So, and I like the work. I mean, I like colleagues like you. And the colleagues will share together at Chime and the interest and the industry's interest. So I wanted to stay involved, but I wanted more flexibility. And I didn't really want to travel like I was traveling, et cetera. So I think what my advice to those of people who are within the zone retirement, whatever you think that happens to be, maybe it's late 50s, maybe it's early 60s, is a couple of things. What is later 60s these days? Yeah, yeah, could be, you know, yeah. is and particularly with the RA's taking a hit. It can yeah. depend on where you are. Is that one is make some call about whether you really want to shut the door or whether you want to continue. Whatever the path is, I think five years before you think it's going to happen, you have to start working on it. So you might say, golly, I want to teach. Fair enough. But it's not like the day you retire, the school start calling you say, when can you teach? You actually have to go off and get these positions. You have to figure out whether you like it or you don't. It may sound good, but you say, I don't really like this. And they have to figure out whether you're any good at it, you know, or not. So you start that. You might say, golly, I really want to write. I want to do like John did through these books. So sure enough, start writing now. See whether, again, you like it, you're good at it. Start getting a track record and a real experience to make sure it is really what you want to do. And to do that in off to the side, but enough while you're still gainfully employed. So I think you want to go off and just really do that such that when you do walk, close, turn off the lights, you know what you want to do and you're good at it and you've got some inertia on it. So I think you do that. I think it goes without saying that you want to make sure that financially you can handle this, but this is not going to lead to a really bad situation a couple of years out yeah. and all of this kind of stuff here. And the only other things that I would add along the way or a couple of things, one is sometimes you get anxious. So there it is day one of retirement and the phone's not ringing and I get anxious about this stuff. And the first time someone comes along and says, hey, would you like to help me out here or there and the other? And you get anxious enough, you start jumping at stuff prematurely. And so you just be careful because, you know, you don't worry that three months after the fact, you're still ramping up in a way. And then last but not least, and actually the hardest part for me in the whole thing, Sue, was for decades, I mean, 35 years, this sort of full-time professional, white-collar, C-suite type was my identity. And all of a sudden it wasn't. And so getting used to the fact that I don't have, I remember going on LinkedIn and they say, what's your title? And I thought, geez, I don't actually have a title anymore. You know, what am I going to put here? And I thought, used to be useful. One time was valuable. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> well, I can't, that's not really kind of the image that I wanted. But sometimes put people put visionaries and this, that, and the other. But I didn't really want that either. So I think you have to get used to this big part of your identity being gone. And it doesn't diminish your value or your worth or what you like to do. You just have to get used to the fact that you want to travel somewhere, you got to make the reservation. There's not some person who sits out in front who does that on your behalf and nobody calls you fancy title this or your office is 
your bedroom or whatever the world it happens to be. So anyway, you just get emotionally ready for that thing. And that can actually be quite challenging. But rest like you, I am delighted that I did this. And uh, I think it made the right call to go off and do this. And I remember talking last couple of points is talking to a board member at Partners, a guy named Jim Cash. He was a board okay. member. He was at the Harvard Business School, a very smart, thoughtful guy. And asked about retirement. He said, fundamentally, if you want to stay in the industry like you and I have done in this thing, at a perhaps reduced rate, but nonetheless, he said, you've got 10 years to do that. Assuming health hold, he said, after about 10 years, you become increasingly removed from what's going on. And so you're less and less attuned to the, you know, you and I were at partners. We lived in the middle of this thing. You don't live in the middle of it anymore. He said, the second is your Rolodex starts to thin out. So all of your colleagues and your buddies, people you'd call, well, they're retired. Sometimes they pass away. So one of the things that strikes me is going to chime is every year how I know fewer and fewer people because the cohort does as you would expect life to do. So anyway, there you go. But if it's 10 years, I'll take it. You know, that, that'd be cool. And we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of great points there about identity when you retire. I know when Tom retired well in advance of me, he had all of that going on. I guess because of what I've stayed involved in and the work we're doing, I'm not there yet in terms of having that crisis, shall we say. I think yeah. your point about picking and choosing is really important too. Mm -hmm. You can say yes and no. You can say no to the things that you don't want yeah. to do. Yeah. And I do remember you mentioning when we saw each other this summer about the 10-year relevance. And yeah. I mean, 10 years actually might be long, especially in our industry yeah. with how fast healthcare and technology. It's both. interesting. You know, what I think I find, Sue, is the technology moves very, very fast. So in 10 years, you really can be out of touch. Yeah. That being said, Leading organizational change, persuading a CFO to invest big bucks in something, that's timeless. Yeah. So whatever skills you have, those kind of things persist. And you can find that you're dealing with a small company being run by this really smart person who's in their late 20s and their umbilical cord is still attached. So you actually have wisdom and experience that you don't appreciate yet. It can be quite valuable. So anyway, you just have to know what persists and is durable versus what stuff really is fleeting uh, as you go through this. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't know enough people at Chime, and I doubt that's the case, I'll hang out with you, John. Okay. Oh, God. Finally, I got a friend. You know, that's all <laughs> you have a friend. <laughs> you and you and Mitchell Branzell. All right, I got two. I got two. Yeah, friends. yeah, yeah. Is there anything else before we close out that you want to comment on? No, it's first of all, it's a pleasure to always spend time with you. You're one of my favorite people of all time in this industry. So glad to spend Very time, fun. whether it's with dinner together in the summer or on this. And obviously, we'll see you in a couple months. And to all the folks who listen to this, hope to see many of you at Chime also. And again, th I want to thank you know all those people who commit their sessions, you and me included, to using the technology to improve the care that we collectively differ. Thank you, because this is important work and will always be important work. So thanks for what you've done and thanks for what you will do. And again, it was a pleasure to spend time with you, Sue. Likewise, John, you're one of my favorite people. And as always, you are inspiring and grateful to everybody who's making a difference in healthcare. So thank you. All right. I'll take care. I'll see you in a couple of months. Yes. I really love the show. I love hearing from people on the front lines. I love hearing from these leaders. And we want to thank our hosts who continue to support the community by developing this great content. We also want to thank our show sponsors, Olive, Rubric, Trellix, Medigate, and F5 in partnership with Sirius Healthcare for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. If you want to support the show, let someone know about our shows. They all start with This Week Health, and you can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. There's Keynote, Town Hall, and Newsroom. Check them out today, and thanks for listening. That's all for now.